0: You're listening to the average conservationist podcast brought to you in partner with 2% for conservation, 2% for conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about, whether you are into hunting, fishing, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Thursday, I guess, because I'm a day late on this, but welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. All right, today, so uh, I have a, it's not even a different episode, uh, but it's one that's a bit more specific and focused in nature uh, as it resolves revolves excuse me, around a topic, um, that is currently playing out in front of us here in Michigan. Um, And today I'm going to be joined by Nick Green uh, from Michigan United Conservation Clubs. I had Nick on the podcast uh, probably over a year ago or so here and just kind of talking about MUCC, uh, the work that they're doing there here in Michigan, uh, and really what it is that they stand for uh, as a conservation organization. However, today uh, Nick and I discuss an ongoing event, um, here in Michigan. And that is the expansion of the army national guard, um, facilities, Camp Grayling. Um, currently Camp Grayling leases, uh, about 140,000 acres, uh, here in Northern lower Michigan, um, to conduct all sorts of things, training, um, you know, just a, a list of things, I guess, as it pertains to uh, to the National Guard, and it's funny because I talk about this in the episode, but I actually grew up a very short distance away from Camp Grailing, uh, and would oftentimes hear them, um, you know, going through their training cycles and, and things like that. So it's it's certainly something that I am familiar with. Uh, however, recently they have proposed um, to lease another. Hundred roughly hundred and sixty thousand acres, so more than doubling uh, their size, and and this would all be public lands uh, that they were looking to to lease uh, from the state of Michigan. So there has been certainly uh, a lot of pushback, uh, you know, from. It's from, you know, local citizens, from certainly from conservation organizations that want to be able to maintain, uh, access, uh, you know, Michigan has over 4 million acres of public land. Um, so this is, you know, a decent chunk, uh, especially, uh, in an area that many of the residents are using, uh, this land to recreate on. So Nick and I kind of dive into some topics, some parts of the topic, um, speak at, you know, kind of higher levels uh, and other parts of it. But all in all, it's just a a conversation that we wanted to have to kind of bring awareness to it. um, And, you know, just kind of continue the dialogue, uh, continue the, the, the open conversation um, that is going on about this and at worst case, just educate some people um, on the situation that may or may not be aware of it. So uh, episode 138, gosh, I don't even know I'm losing track at this point, uh, but with Nick Green from Michigan United Conservation Clubs. Uh, enjoy this one, guys. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by my friends over at Stone Glacier. Now is a great time to head over and download the Stone Glacier app, whether on iTunes or Google Play, and stay up to date uh, with everything that's going on with Stone Glacier. Uh, it's kind of show season for Stone Glacier. They're making the, the rounds to a lot of these outdoor shows. Uh, but they just dropped some new gear this year, um, which is awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on some of it. A couple new packs, um, some new technical uh, outerwear, and everything like that. So it's certainly something that um, you, know, you guys should be on the lookout for. So be sure to head over to StoneGlacier.com. All right, Nick Green, welcome back to the show, man. How are you today? I'm doing well. Trying to survive the uh, snowstorm apocalypse that's happening. But other than that, glad to be here. (laughs) Yeah, the snowstorm is a funny thing because, one, in Michigan, we're all used to it at this point, obviously. But, I mean, we're damn near February, and this is like our first... Uh, maybe our second kind of substantial snowfall that we've gotten, at least in the lower half of the state, you know. And I, I'm i glad that we're finally getting snow, to be honest, because if it's going to be cold and it's going to be dreary, like at least give me some snow, right? Let me enjoy this time of year, not just with cold. Give me some snow so I can do stuff. So all in all, like I'm hunkered down here at home until roads are cleared and driveways are cleared. So I'm good, man.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard
0: to experience winter
1: in Michigan without snow. I, I don't think I had ever read a winter weather advisory that said, until this point, we haven't really had a lot of snow. So any little bit's going to seem like a lot. I mean, that's essentially what the weather advisory said.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a good point because, I mean, it seemed like even when we had gotten a little bit of precipitation or a little bit of accumulation over the past month and a half, it was gone within the next two or three days. So to, you know hopefully this is enough. The kind of extended forecast looks like it's going to be cold enough to let it stick around and Maybe get a few more inches over the next couple days, just kind of randomly would be, would be nice to have a base and not look at brown grass in February. So, all right, Nick, I asked you to come on today because I want to talk about something and what we're going to do is we're actually going to kind of kill two birds with one stone here. So this is obviously a very conservation driven topic that we're going to talk about today. Uh, but it's also it hits home because it's right here in in our home state of Michigan. So we're going to run this here on the average conservationist podcast this week. And then next week I'm going to turn around and drop this on the Michigan wild podcast, because that is obviously Michigan specific. And I think that, um, you know, we're going to uncover kind of a lot of, of, details or at least what's what's kind of known to us on this issue so that we can hopefully educate or, or get the word out there and let people kind of you know draw their own conclusions or make up their own mind and and really just try to educate people voters um you know outdoorsmen outdoors women as much as possible on uh on this topic so ready to get started Absolutely man let's
1: uh, get after it
0: right. Yeah so <clears throat> for those listening if you have not kind of drawn your own conclusion to this point, or maybe you're out of state. So you may have no idea. We're talking about the expansion of Camp Grayling here in Michigan, which is a National Guard training facility, uh, located in Northern lower Michigan, kind of right, kind of smack dab right off of I-75 for, to give you kind of some geographical reference. Um, Yeah. So they are are talking about expanding it. Uh, It has been proposed. Now, Nick, you were kind enough to send me a timeline earlier today. I'm going to pull this up. So last year, it looks like correct, is when they proposed or the National Guard first approached the DNR about um, kind of the proposal?
1: Yeah. I mean, to even back up a little further and provide a little context, you know, all of this National Guard land is currently on public lands in Michigan. So, These are all state-owned lands that were either purchased using Pittman-Robertson funds, Game and Fish, or tax-reverted lands, which is the majority of our our public lands in Michigan. Essentially, folks didn't pay the taxes or they weren't worth – it wasn't worth farmland, so the state was able to revert it, take it over. Um, So it's important in the context of all this to remember that where the base currently operates, and it is – if it's not the largest, it's one of the largest National Guard bases in the United States – it currently operates on all public land, so they don't own any land themselves. So this is all state-owned land. They've had that lease uh, for several decades, and that's a partnership that folks in Michigan have just kind of come to know. Um, you know, right. the guard is the guard is just in place up there. Uh, they do an event every year called Northern Strike, where they bring countries, in, different countries, in different militaries. Um, so it's not just a, a small base either. It's it's world known. I mean, folks from other other nations know about it.
0: Yeah, I mean I <clears throat> I grew up uh forty minutes away from um camp grayling, I would say. And I recall, you know, hearing when they were going through, you know, training and drills and stuff like that, like the you, you know, whether you know whatever artillery they were firing. Like I could hear it at my home forty minutes away. And it was just commonplace. Like you would hear, you know, it's a bright sunny day and you hear what sounds like thunder, and then you just kind of look to someone, your parents or something, and they're like, Oh, it's just camp grayling right like you just you get used to it right and and you made a very good point there that people in and around not only that area but I think just the state of Michigan have yeah they're just they're used to it right like that's it is what it is um so what they are proposing uh, as i mentioned is an expansion of this public land so
1: yeah so they they currently hold about 140,000 acres uh which is a huge footprint almost hard for most of us to even fathom uh, what that looks like, um, they currently lease 140,000. And in June and July of 2022, uh, we learned that they were seeking an additional lease of 162,000 acres of public land.
0: Uh, so more than doubling more than
1: doubling it. the size of of its footprint. And when this was kind of asked for and made public, the the main reason that the National Guard gave was so that they could do low impact electromagnetic warfare. So everyone started saying, well, what the heck is that? What, you know, what is all this? <laughs> yeah, that would
0: be my question. <laughs> and, uh,
1: you know, just like anything else you can get into the research and the crazies where you have yeah, a lot of electromagnetic warfare that you don't even want to be in the same country as when the beams and waves are going and then some is very <laughs> very, you know, low impact not you know, it's it's cell phone stuff like that kind of so there wasn't a very clear clear indication of what exactly they wanted to do first. Um, But, you know, right off the bat, the organization I work for, MUCC, Michigan United Conservation Clubs, you know, we've always been about public access, about public lands. And we just kind of immediately said, wait a minute, we need to look at our resolutions, which is where a grassroots organization. Uh, And we had one opposing the expansion of Camp Grayling specifically, unless it was an emergency or uh, uh, a national emergency. Um, so we were one right. of the first organizations to oppose this in Michigan. And last summer, it was still very unclear what was going on. I mean, the the National Guard had just basically said, we want 160,000 acres, at, you know, more. The department, you know, had no real idea of what what that meant. Um, anytime you transfer state land, lease state land, sell state land, buy state land, there there is a very involved process that goes into... Not only catalog, cataloging, inventorying that land, but also, you know, for example, when you sell things, you cannot sell lands that are designated under PR purchases. You know, when we purchase those using conservation dollars, can't sell that land. Right. So. Those were all things that we knew were going to have to happen if this was going to move forward. And that was where our minds all started to race in last June and July. And we were able to get together with other conservation organizations. Anglers of the Asaba was a huge fishing, fly fishing organization here in Michigan. A big environment. It's right at the heart of it. Yep. And they're really the boots on the ground folks right now, dealing with the watersheds, dealing with the, the ecology that will be impacted. Um, So we started to to kind of meet together and talk and, you know, figure out what this would mean for all of our respective memberships. Uh, Meanwhile, the Guard kind of did their their public relations tour. Um, Colonel Scott Scott Myers uh, went around to to various uh, townships, county commission meetings, um, road commissions, and, you know, gave the kind of same... PR spiel that, you know, this is America and you should love your military. And, you know, obviously we do love our military, but we also have some concerns. And those concerns kind of grew. I mean, those meetings started with 20 or 30 people. And by the end of it, some of those those public meetings were two, 300 people and almost everyone was opposed. Um, So at that point, it got pretty loud. And I think uh, the DNR director at the time took note and there was some brake pumping and said, you know, let's kind of look at this. And that was around the Labor Day holiday. Um, and we were still, all the conservation community was still marching in lockstep with, you know, we haven't seen a valid reason for this expansion. Um, you know, right. there is so much that, you know, there are a million ways to break this down, but one of our, our most, one of the, the worries we have most is the resource strain on the department. So not only are you, you know, potentially leasing land that maybe I won't have access to. But when we talked to the unit supervisor in that area, Tom Barnes, he said, you know, it's likely my staff has to undertake this ground truthing of the land. We have to go figure out what's eligible and what's not. And, you know, the guard had no proposal to pay for any of that.
0: Um, so that was all going to come out of our was Yeah, that was going yeah, to be born out
1: of, and even yeah. more than taxpayers. That was going to come out of Hunter and Angler license dollars. That was going to yeah, be conservation right. dollars, not tax money. That was coming out of Game and Fish Fund. So, you know, there were a lot of flags just popping up, flags popping up. And it was kind of at that point last summer where I think the DNR started to maybe see that this was rolling in a bad direction. And it's important to remember that our Department of Natural Resources is not who is not who um, brought this forward. It was the National Guard. They're simply the body that has to, you know, undertake the, the survey and deciding whether the lease would work. And then we got into election season and things, you know, like everything else, what happens when when elections are going on. You forget kind of all the important stuff. Um, In December of last year, we kind of reconvened again to figure out everything and and figure out where we were at as a a coalition and our conservation stakeholder groups. Uh, And at that point, we had something like 16 uh, townships, road commissions uh, against this proposal, um, none in favor, as far as I, I know. Uh, there's six or eight big, large conservation organizations. So it's really gained a lot of momentum and opposition. Uh, in, in kind of the biggest point uniting us all has been public access. You know, you, there needs to be a need enunciated on why this much land is, is necessary. Uh, and then ensuring that our habitats are not going to be, be degraded from activities on the land?
0: Yeah, so a a couple things is, is one, you know, I've had family members who are in the National Guard, I've had family members who have served, you know, in, you know, one of the, the, the major branches of the military. So I'm certainly pro military, like you mentioned, a lot of us, as Americans, regular citizens, we are, we're absolutely in favor of our military. I don't like the fact that they use that to kind of prop that up, like, hey, this is why we should do it. Like, it's our military. And and I agree, like, we should certainly support our military. And, you know, we have our freedoms that we do because of our military. However, like you said, there there's not really a good justifiable reason for the expansion. And it's not like they're saying, hey, we want to uh, purchase or lease another four, you know, forty thousand acres, for example, right? Like get you close to maybe the two hundred thousand acres, which is still a ton of land. But I almost feel like something like that would have been a bit more palatable to the DNR, to conservation organizations. Even if you weren't, you know, on board with it, you could say you, you know, the argument could possibly be made that okay, it's a good chunk of land, but it's not too terribly much as, you know, as opposed to what they are asking for, you know, more than more than doubling in size. And it, I'm curious as to why that much land. And I don't know if, if something like that has come out or if that was just what they figured they needed. How much due diligence was really done on the side of the National Guard to for how much due diligence? due diligence, excuse me, they did to really understand or, you know, what the proposed impact would be on that land, on, you know, the wildlife, the habitat that, you know, lives on that area, what that's going to do. Because obviously now the, you know, 148,000 acres that they do have that is currently Camp Grayling, like, you know, anglers, hunters, like we cannot access that land for, you know, recreational use. I mean, that puts a a really big dent in you know, like now granted that that region in Michigan has has a lot of public land. However, that's a really big chunk that's that's gonna go missing. And I would you know, I you probably can't even quantify the number of, you know, local and non local residents that are, you know, traveling in from out of town or they have, you know, a cabin in the general vicinity that they use that current, you know, hundred and sixty eight thousand acres of land to recreate on, whether it's you know, ATVs or snowmobiling, because obviously that part of Michigan, come the wintertime, um, you know, gets hit really hard, or I don't even know if that's the right word, but they get a big influx of people for, you know, snowmobiling purposes. And there's a ton of trails that run in that area, and people are already having to, you know, kind of go way out of their way with certain trails to, you know, avoid Camp Grayling. I'm curious as to why, and maybe you can shed some light on this, or maybe you just, it's come up in meetings and whatnot, why they've chosen that much land and why they have maybe not given us a really valid reason <laughs> as to why that that much Yeah, land, I, I mean, guess. I think
1: the first important point to note is that their current lease, all of that land isn't closed, however a big chunk of it is, uh, and you'll drive into gates okay. and you'll drive into berms where you can't access it. So that is that's awful. You know, that's public land that was on our game and fish dime that's now closed. And that's kind of, you know, those those relationships, those things that have happened through this current lease have shed light on where we would ever go if we were to re-up a lease or work together again. I mean, there needs to be much more assurances if it were to ever happen. Um, I would say, you know, another really great point you made is about what's called an environmental impact study. You didn't know that's what you were talking about, but that also is yeah. not born on the Guard. That is a DNR responsibility that the Guard wouldn't even pay for. So the Guard has basically just said, we would like to lease this land. And then it's the state of Michigan who has to do the environmental impact study. They have to hire the staff to do that. You know, they have to go through all that. And there's been no no promises from the Guard to help pay for any of that. What they have claimed and what what Colonel Scott Myers continues to say is that they need space to be able to get their radars and their technology away from each other so that they can use the jamming, uh, technology or whatever they're trying to, um, the warfare they're trying to train for why they need that many acres in that specific spot in Michigan. You know, that hasn't been really clear. Um, you know, not to go down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories, but there's a ton of money in, in the military and in, in defense you know, in yeah. defense spending and in contractors, and so Camp Grilling is also used for those kind of endeavors. Um, so this all has a lot of what ifs and things I'm not sure we'll ever know on the National Guard side. Um, but what we can say is that they have not, at least in our mind and conservationist minds, they have not illustrated a clear need for more than you know doubling their current footprint. And yeah. they haven't always demonstrated being a great neighbor. You know, I've I've had instances up there personally where I'd be hunting with my dogs um, and come up on land that's just gated off for the day with no signs, you know, and I can't go into that area. Or come up on where they were ripping through with their Humvees and stuff, and it's just kind of rutted up, and you can tell. And they're supposed to go back and fix those roads. Uh, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And that's where we kind of have to if we're going to move forward with any type of relationship, we need to kind of grow on what we've learned uh, and improve and, and make sure that they're following through on their end of the partnership.
0: Yeah. So as things kind of continue to, to move forward to March on no pun intended there, what, uh, what does the process look like now, like as, you know, like the NRC, the DNR, like everyone is has is having, you know, meetings and, and whatnot about this proposed expansion, I guess from two sides, like one, what does the National Guard need to do in order to kind of see this thing through or, you know, conversely. What does like the DNR or, you know, very, the various conser- conservation organizations like MUCC need to do in order to kind of get this thing to a halt? So
1: from day one, this has always been what's what's considered director authority. Um, so this this type of action, so leasing our public lands, only has to go through our DNR director. There is no NRC, no legislative process, like it or not that's the way it is in Michigan and it works really well for some things and not really well for others. And I think that was probably the checks and balance when that, when that was instituted, but this is a director authority. uh, So really it's one person who, who at the end of the day could make this decision. As we know, that's not how things work. Uh, You know, you know, there are a lot of players in this. There's a lot of team members, biologists who are, who are weighing in. Um, What we kind of have heard and we can talk about, A little bit is that the department has done a a preliminary review of what the guard has asked for and we have been told by interim director lot that the amount of land available to the guard is likely a lot less than they want Um, and that review included you know removing lands that just wouldn't be like we talked about, that aren't able to be leased because they were purchased with Game and Fish funds or they were, you know, various PR purchases, things like that. So, right. you know, I think that has been elaborated recently to the guard. We have not seen the guard's response. There are a lot of avenues that could come out of that, you know, that could say, <sighs> Shannon, uh, excuse me, uh, Director Locke could have said, you know, come back to me with a smaller proposal uh come back to me with special use permits when you want to do like one off day events. I mean there are a lot of ways to do this that doesn't doesn't involve us signing over 162,000 acres of land that we really don't have an easy way to to close the 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 gap on.
0: <laughs> right. Um go ahead, sorry. Well, I mean that's no no no, that's I think that that, that makes a lot more sense. I mean just in you know, some of this information I'm kind of learning as we as we speak about it here, but you know like the special event use, you know, whether it's one day or even potentially a week, if you want to run, you know, training for a week, if, if people are coming in from other branches or, you know, other countries, like you said, things like that, then I, I could understand that saying, hey, we need to, you know, lease this, you know, 20,000 acres for a week. Right to to run some some training and things like that, so it will be closed to the public, and that way the the impact is is minimal compared to what it would be if it was you know year round for the next you know fifteen twenty years. I mean, what what is the proposed you know I guess term on the lease? Is it just indefinite at this point? Is yeah, what they're proposing? I don't know
1: what the lease terms would be, but it would presumably be something like indefinite because that's what we've seen happen with the other yeah. lease. So. You know the other idea we don't want to get into, and we're all we're all very familiar with what happens when you get comfortable is you forget the little details. You know, so if we could operate mm-hmm. under something like special use permits, that ensures that after every time it's done, someone is going out there making sure that messes were cleaned up, things are mitigated. You know, right now in the current relationship we have, that's probably not happening. You know, because this is technically the guards' leased land. There, there's no one going in behind them all of the time to make sure that the contract was followed through with. Um, And that's not to say the guard hasn't been a great partner. I mean, I think um, Supervisor Tom Barnes for the department up there would tell you they've been great, but there's also times when you have 130,000 acres and Humvees and tanks and heavy equipment and people all over the place and artillery, you know, you're going to have confrontation. And um, it's amazing to me that when this all kicked off, the guard didn't soften that confrontation at the beginning with a little bit more of a PR campaign that they just kind of said, hey, we want 160,000 acres. Um, I'm not sure if they thought it was just a slam dunk right off the bat, but it's been pretty inspiring to see the local community, um, which includes, you know, every political spectrum, you know, just every kind of walk of life person opposed to this. Um, It's been a cool issue to see people rally around.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about this in the past too, is, is public lands, access, conservation in general, seems to be one of those topics or issues that, yeah, both sides tend to see eye to eye on a lot more than, than others. Right. I think, and that probably comes from the fact that, you know, hunters and anglers, you know, they're, they're on the left, they're on the right, you know, they're somewhere in the middle, like they're, they're, they're all over the spectrum, and, and I think that that certainly bodes well. I mean, you know, just look at the past, shoot, 10 to 15 years of, you know, kind of the, the total body of conservation work that's been—or or work that's been accomplished throughout kind of the, the country with some of these, you know, bills being passed into law and the, the money that's been, you know, earmarked or set aside for, you know, the future of conservation. Um, I mean, what is—I'm uh, trying to think of— What's in kind of the legislative process right now? Is it the Saving yeah, America's, America's Wildlife, Wildlife Act? Act? I think that's yep. one that's of the a recovering. big one we're yeah, me. right now. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's one that uh, I talked with uh, Drew Youngdike from the uh, National Wildlife Federation um, here in Michigan. Uh, and you know it's it, that's one of those those acts that's going to allow us to be proactive when it comes to conservation and, and try to get out ahead of a lot of these issues that that we're potentially staring down the barrel of, as opposed to you know the twenty fifth hour having to you know kind of put out this rally cry to you know try to stop this the sell of you know millions of acres of public land whether it's out west or you know the mining um, at the uh, boundary waters in Minnesota, you know, like something like that. So it's, it's good to see kind of where this generation of voters, this generation of, you know, outdoor recreationists are, you know, that they're using their voice and their platform in order to, you know, make sure these changes are for the better and not for the worse of our public lands and wild places and all these things. I'm, uh, I'm curious as to, the timing, I guess, of the National Guard, you know, proposing this because I'm going to speak in very, you know, general terms here, but typically when there's, you know, a Republican president in office, the spending for things like, you know, defense is, is usually much higher, right? I mean, I think that's just kind of goes without saying. And Michigan has been one of those states that's been, um, it's bounced back and forth from red and blue over the years. And, you know, recently it has been blue. So it, it, I'm a little, I guess, a little surprised in the timing that they wouldn't wait till maybe there was a Republican in office, you know, um, from a governor standpoint, or a Republican in office, you know, at the highest, highest chair. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think it was just that that had anything to do with it? Or, you know, maybe they were just kind of a bit arrogant in their process. Like, they're just like, you know what, we're going to get the support because, you know, we are, you I know, think the military. we
1: you know, you kind of characterize the general stereotype that most of us have is that Republicans are behind the war machine and D's aren't. Um, And we are a non-political C3, so we don't, we don't get into that, but opining on it, you know, I will tell you that D's and R's love the war machine just as much. Uh, They just may talk about it a little differently. So I don't, I don't think that. that who, whether it's an R or a D as the, especially at the governor level has a real, You know, again, they when there is military spending, regardless of who's in power, they like it uh, when they're in power. You know, if it's not your party in power, then you don't like them spending money on the military. Um, But I think, you know, to answer your second question, I think that the Guard thought things were kind of on cruise control and comfortable. And it was going to be an easy Mm -hmm. ask. Um, And I don't think, I just, I really don't think they anticipated the public outcry because you know they have very smart people in the armed forces and the national guard you know they know how to run a campaign and and how to how to do public relations and for them to just have dropped it and be like we want to double our size let's do some meetings like without any ground softening or you know kind of trying to meet with the public ahead of time it just says to me that they thought this was going to be a slam dunk um and the public really yeah changed the course on this, I think, you know, whether or not at the end of the day, we have to remember this is the decision of one DNR director who is appointed by an elected governor who has ad, you know, has hopes probably higher than her governorship. So, you know, at the sure. end of the day, it could be politics, but we're hopeful that, you know, the public outcry, folks banging the drum, the stories, I mean, that's what's been awesome in all this is those those very personal and intimate stories about that area. So, you know, like me going to try to run my dogs in area and I come up on a gate that I can't. But for a lot of people, like you said, it's their cabin and it's their, it's their where they go to retreat, go up north. And to now have to listen to that in a new area or, you know, it's, it's going to be tough for them. And listening to them tell that story has resonated the most. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we haven't heard a ton of outcry from folks in Southern Michigan. Um, and I expect once the summer season starts to roll around, we probably will hear some more once they start kind of going up to their cabins up North.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can totally understand that. Going back to something that we were talking about earlier with, you know, biologists in the DNR and, and their staff, you know, doing, you know, having to do you know, studies and everything to see, you know, what the, actual proposed impact would be on the land that they're, you know, looking to acquire or looking to lease. Is there, you know, since the DNR has, you know, kind of owned or leased and operated on the current land that they have, is there ever times where the DNR biologists and things can, and their team can come in and and do studies? Like, is, do they have kind of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? a Do they have like a, a starting point, I guess, as to say, okay, like, the land looked like this, you know, X amount of years ago. This is what the land looks like now, just to see what the impact has had. Because I'm sure, you know, over the course of time that, you know, the, the wild animals that, you know, inhabit places, you know, Camp Grayling as it is, like, has changed immensely, you know, since, since that. Like, I'm sure, you know, some animals have figured, like, oh, this is, you know, a safe place. Like, I don't run into you know, hunters, so to speak, although there is still a lot of human interaction in there. But you know, like, I wonder if it's almost like, you know, when you see like neighborhood deer, right? Like they just get used to it, but they know they're not threatened by it, but they're used to it. Like, I wonder if, if that's the effect on it, or if it's just, you know, aside from maybe like squirrels and birds and, you know, know, really small game like that, that, you know, all the, the larger game, specifically like whitetail has kind of moved on from the area or, you know, even like your upland bird population, like what does that look like? You know, not only on the campgrounds, but like in the surrounding area where there's, you know, probably going to be some type of peripheral damage, you know, just from a a standpoint of, you know, noise and activity and things like that. I would say, you know, certainly the camp's
1: infrastructure footprint where there are like barracks and buildings and all that stuff definitely has Mm -hmm. moved and altered that landscape beyond what we'll ever get back. The remainder of of the current lease has undoubtedly had an effect on animals because they're driving heavy machinery and firing off artillery. You know, what we don't know is, like you said, what was it like before? You know, did that environmental impact study truly bear out what this would all mean. I mean, and that would be interesting to go look now at what right. the EIS said from decades ago that, you know, when they did that initial lease. Um, I don't, and to my knowledge, I don't know anyone who's went through and actually like catalog cataloged that. Again, that would be something that's on the state. The state would be required to do it, which is completely ass-backwards. Um, um, but <laughs> yeah, I just... You know, there are there's not enough dollars already in our in our conservation wildlife management coffers that we just we can't support the state having to having to foot the bill for all this ground truthing. Um, and, and basically what it's doing is militarizing our public land. You know, we're even if they don't want to close the public land, which is what they have claimed on this new new expansion, they wouldn't close land uh, specifically from November 5th through deer season. Um, but the rest of the year could be open to closing, but the colonel hasn't said that for sure. It's a very odd, uh, it's, it's the way he answers the question is odd. Um, so we're, we're just, there's a lot of what ifs still that we're just still trying to sort through, figure out, um, and, you know, I think raising awareness and bringing attention to it's going to continue to help the cause.
0: Yeah. Has the guard put any timeline on when they would like to see, you know, some actual, some real movement, you know, where they're, is there a point where they're going to really start to put pressure on the director of the DNR to we make haven't a decision heard about one way or that, the other? I
1: suspect they have a timeline or a plan.
0: Uh, we have not heard about that. The only timeline we
1: kind of know of right now um, was that, you know, folks wanted to get through the election on both sides, before there were any big decisions made. Um, obviously, the administration at that point didn't want to make a decision when a new administration could be in in a, in a month or two. So, no clear timelines right now. Right. Um, again, at the end of the day, this is a director's decision. It is not a legislative decision. It is not a Natural Resources Commission decision. Uh, if you're truly in, if you're in Michigan and you care about it, uh, emailing the director, emailing um, even your your elected officials helps because. You know them calling the director or them calling the DNR office is also helpful. Um.
0: Yeah, we talked about that when the guard proposed it. You know, there it seemed like they thought it was going to be a bit of a slam dunk ask, right? Was there any hint or anything like that that a request like this was potentially coming? H- had it been talked about in you know in the past, or was it just kind of out of left field? Said hey by the way, now that we're you know talking about camp railing, we want to you know more than double in size what I'm do not you think?
1: sure I mean this has been the one hiccup in the process for us in regards to the department um, is they were approached in January of 2022 about this proposal stakeholders the public didn't find out about it until June or Ju- or excuse me till July when the National Guard um so what was right. happening in those six to seven months where it was just kind of dead space from when the guard brought it forward to when it was actually out in the open. We don't know. Um, but you know, there hasn't been any, again, real timeline, any concrete happenings. I'm not sure the guard, I think the guard probably had to reformulate, you know, reconfigure some of their plans after the first few public meetings. Um, so they probably have stepped back mm-hmm. and started to to figure out a better way to approach folks and, we haven't seen that yet. Hopefully, we, we will be seeing it here shortly.
0: Yeah, because I mean we're you know a year into the process now, and I, I yeah, I don't think that I first learned about this. I, I mean, it was I know it was after June or July. I think when it first kind of came across, you know, whether it was an email or social media or wherever it was that I saw it, it, it may have even been in one of Mucc's newsletters um, that I first learned about it. I'm curious to see if as time goes on, if, you know, the, the, the crowd, you know, the, the majority that is opposed to this, if they continue to, to still be loud about their opposition or if it's just going to kind of, if, if no one's talking about it, right. If it, if it loses steam in kind of the public eye, the public opinion that, you know, maybe the director feels less pressure um to to oppose it or you know you know i just wonder what happens as as time continues to drag on with this if if the opposition is going to be there or if it's just going to kind of fall by the wayside and it's just going to kind of slip through the cracks so to speak and the next thing you know we're going to be out you know almost two hundred thousand acres of public land i can say pretty
1: confidently that it's probably not going to slip by the wayside um Michigan United Conservation Clubs was contacted last week by the governor's office about this specific issue, uh, wanting to talk about our concerns, where we were at, what was some background context. Uh, so as you can imagine, when it's risen to that level, things aren't things aren't going by the way. Yeah. Um, so that's where I was kind of coming from. We expect probably some type of word or some type of something to be said shortly because When when a governor's office gets involved, you know, it's kind of rising to that level of, you know, we're going to we're probably going to work on this or we need to say something about it or, you know, now it's on our radar. Um, Not that it wasn't before, but it's to a point now, you know, you have to remember that the conservation world is but a small piece of what politicians work on, you know, education, health. There are things that are far more important than what we do. So when we get those kind of calls, we know it's a big deal. We know this is, you know, so we're optimistic that something soon is going to come out. You know, we don't really have an indication one way or another, other than what I said, that a preliminary view from the department showed that, you know, the land that they want is just not available. Uh, and that's from the, the likely the funding yeah. purchases from that land.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, this is, I feel like, for, you know, for, for people listening that have not, you know, maybe they've heard about it in passing. They haven't either had the time, they didn't know where to look, whatever the case is in terms of, you know, kind of doing their homework and, and really understanding kind of the entire process. And, and for the most part, you know, we've, we've talked at, you know, fairly kind of high levels w- with everything. I'm sure that as there have been, uh, you know, meetings and, um, or public meetings and things like this, that there's certainly been more detail uh, discussed. But I hope that as time continues to go on, you know, like you said, that this isn't something that's going to, you know, slip by the wayside, that people are going to continue to be loud and proud about, you know, being, you know, outdoorsmen and outdoorswomen and wanting to protect these lands, because I, I don't know, I don't know if it, if it sets a precedent for, you know, for other bases or other, you know, guard camps, you know, across the country where it's like, you know, they want to double in size. And then, you know, next thing you know, in 25 years or whatever the case is, you know, these huge swaths of public land have been leased off for, you know, government use and and things like that. And, uh, yeah, I just hope that maybe Michigan can kind of help, you know set the tone, I guess, when it comes to, to things like this and, and continue to, you know, look out for, you know, the recreationists because Michigan, I think, and I've talked about this on, on the Michigan podcast, where I think it's as, as a state, we are, I think kind of, uh, fly under the radar a bit in terms of what we can offer from an outdoor recreation standpoint. I mean, between the Great Lakes, the UP, I mean, we have some amazing, you know fisheries and upland bird hunting, and you know it gets kind of poo pooed upon for for whitetail hunting. But I mean, really big deer hit the ground every year in Michigan. You know that are you know in a class that are you know like Iowa and Kansas things like that. It just I don't know. It's people are just like ah, it's Michigan. We also have right? four like, and a half million cool makers, place to visit. Land. Yeah,
1: it's just state owned land. You know, I mean that's huge. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. Not a lot of other states can say that. Um so I hope that, you know, we as as Michiganders can, you know, put our foot down and say, hey, we appreciate what the National Guard does. We appreciate what our military does for us, but we just can't we just can't allow this. We just can't let you guys kind of take our public lands. What
1: I'm hopeful for is that we'll come up with some type of creative solution. So we don't get very far in the policy world when you stand in one side and say never and scream, or if you stand in one side and say, we got to go all in, you know, you have to, you have to find some common ground and come to the middle sometimes. And I think, you know, there are creative ways to look at this expansion that can accomplish some of what the guard is going to need. We can feel good about, you know, taking care of our troops and supporting our military, but not doing it at the expense of our public land. I think there are probably ways to do that. And hopefully That'll be kind of the next iteration of this expansion is that, you know, if they don't just say, no, we're not going to not going to allow you to do anything, which also would be great. But if they don't, there may be some type of okay, but like let's let's talk about it through through that lens. So I think there's space for that. I think, you know, like I said, they've been a good partner um, to our department up there in some some respects. Um, And they they provide jobs and they, they, you know, they're doing good things, too. Uh, We just have to remember that. Hunters and anglers were the original conservationists, and we paid for that public land, and we want to be able to use it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's <clears> That feels like a good place to kind of wrap this up at. But one more thing, I suppose, is for those that want to, you know, that are just learning about this or that— you know, now having heard, you know, more about the situation, they want to voice their opinions. And you kind of touched on it before, but where is the best place for them to to reach out, voice their opinions, you know, attend some of these um you know, open yeah, if meetings. You, if and folks things are like on that.
1: Facebook. There's a Facebook page called I think Camp Grayling Opposition. If you if you put that in, it'll pop up for you. That's a pretty, pretty vibrant, strong page. Um, that's a good place to stay in tune with all sorts of in, that's run by volunteers, it's all kind of local, local folks. Um, going to MUCC.org, which is the organization I work for, uh, we have an action center, a policy action center where you can actually go in, input your zip code and address, and then it'll send a canned letter to your Senator, to your representative, to the DNR director regarding this. So, uh, another way would be to send the DNR a note. Um, you can send the director, you can find her email online, uh, or the deputy director and just let them know kind of what your thoughts are, um, you know, again, staying engaged, making sure your voice is heard when it needs to be. Uh, so, MUCC often puts out action alerts, and that's as simple as you, you know, hitting yes, and it'll it'll send all that response away. All you had to do is to hit yes when we text you or email you. Um, so, pay attention to things like those. And there is a benefit to all of those emails, all of those texts. We quite often meet with legislators, with rulemakers, that say, you know, you guys put out a camp grailing thing, and I got twelve hundred text messages in one night. You know. Uh, so to them, you know, that's, that's their constituents blowing them up and it's an issue that they should care about. Uh, and this is kind of where Camp Grayling's at right now. It was when we put it in our email system, it had a lot of grassroots love and it spread far and wide and we kind of knew it was going to be big right from the start.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Nick Green, I appreciate you uh, coming back on and talking about this, man. This was certainly uh, a good conversation and an important topic that, that needed to be to, needed to be discussed and, um, kind of brought out there to the masses. So thank you again, man. And hopefully we can check back in with some, uh, with some good news down the road as far as this is concerned. And all that you do for conservation and keep up the good fight. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. All right. Well, thank you again to Nick for uh, taking some time to sit down with me and uh, discuss this important topic, uh, especially as it pertains to things here in Michigan. Uh, I'd like to thank the partners of the podcast Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, and of course, 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive, conservation-driven content, so you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode and and really took something out of it. Be sure to check out TheAverageConservationist.com, pick up some swag, some gear there, and uh, support conservation in the process. And, uh, stick around. We've got some great, uh, episodes coming for you, um, in the next couple weeks and, and onward. So till next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.